Well, good morning again, church. <clears throat> if some of you have like a superhuman memory, you might remember that two years ago, I preached Thanksgiving Sunday here. None of you remember that, and that's probably a good thing. Um, but starting that sermon two years ago, I started by talking about, right, kind of the, the classic, like, hallmark image of a, of a Thanksgiving dinner, right? I mean, the, the, the big family table, the, the turkey, the stuffing, the cranberry sauce, the pumpkin pie, and then, of course, going around the table, person by person, with the opportunity to share something that you are grateful for. I don't know about you, but honestly, that image in my mind, like, almost takes on the, like, the nostalgia lens, like the sepia tone look as I'm picturing it in my head. It's just like that cheesy. But when I found out about a month ago that I would be preaching Thanksgiving again this year, I started thinking about this image again. And I'm sure that, that many of you here would feel the same way as me. That is like quintessential Thanksgiving. That's what you want. That's maybe what some of you are headed out to after this service today is that exact thing. But for others of you, as you think of that image, it actually feels a lot more like pouring salt on a wound. Because you've been through it this week, or this month, or this year, or maybe this last stage of your life. And as you picture that scene in your head and it comes to you at the table, you can't think of anything that you would share. At the same time, I've been reading through the book of Romans in my personal devotions. As I got into chapter 5 a few weeks back, I was struck again by the first few verses of Romans chapter 5. This is what Paul says. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. What Paul is saying here is that suffering is something that is actually fundamentally different for those who know Christ. Now, we get to do everybody's favorite thing, and we're going to briefly talk about grammar. Yeah, that's about the reaction I expected. Because that word in, when Paul says that we rejoice in our sufferings, that can mean two very different things. When Paul says in, he could mean that we rejoice in the midst of our suffering, right? We might say that a woman who has, after she has given birth, we might say that she was so strong in the hospital, we don't mean that the hospital made her strong. We, we mean that she was strong while she was there doing something difficult. If that's the case, Paul is saying something like, I rejoice in spite of my suffering. But it could also mean, I rejoice in the fact that I am suffering. In the same way that, that we might say of a good husband that he delights in his wife, we mean that, that she causes delight to well up inside of him. In which case, Paul is saying that he rejoices, or, or Christians can rejoice because of their sufferings. Those are two very different meanings, 
And the sermon would take two very different shapes depending on which it is that Paul means, but I think the context points us to actually take the second option. Because just before, he says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. By which he means clearly not in the midst of, not in the midst of hope, but because of the hope that we have. And then he says we also rejoice in our sufferings, that the two ins mean the same thing. We rejoice in suffering in the same way that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So Paul is saying that Christians rejoice not just in spite of suffering, but actually because of it. To tie this back to our Thanksgiving image, it's almost like Paul is saying that that somebody whose view on life has been transformed by their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ could sit at that table on Thanksgiving and honestly share about their gratitude for the difficulties that they have been going through. So how could Paul say this? Right? I mean, he, he kind of just glosses over it in these verses. He, he sort of talks about the, the results of suffering and how it produces good in us, but he doesn't really talk about why that is. He just seems to throw this out like he naturally just assumes it to be true. And so what we're going to take some time to do this morning is see why he feels that way. Now, I feel a certain amount of tension this morning. Um, you've heard me say so many times at this point that some of you might be able to complete this sentence for me, that the job of a preacher is to comfort the troubled and to trouble the comfortable. And I fear that a sermon like this has the potential to miss the mark and trouble the troubled. Right? So so we need to be clear that the goal of what we're doing this morning is not to look at those who are going through intense suffering and just say, eh, buck up, be grateful for it, you're fine. that's, That's not what we're going for. What we're going for is to deepen our biblical and theological understanding of how God relates to our suffering so that he can be our comforter when we go through it. And so we'll do that by two points this morning. The first point is that we must believe that God is sovereign over our suffering, and we must trust that our suffering has a purpose. So that first point, believe that God is sovereign over your suffering. Let's start by defining some terms. We have a couple of words here that can potentially mean different things depending on how they're used. And so that first word, sovereign. When we say that God is sovereign, when we sang earlier that God is sovereign, we mean that God has the absolute right to do all things according to his pleasure. He's king. Nothing can resist his will. It's closely related to the idea of God's providence. If sovereignty is God's absolute right to do all that he pleases, his providence is the power by which he actually does that. So that's what sovereign means. But we also have to talk about suffering because I don't want us to make the mistake this morning of of thinking only big. But by which I mean suffering can mean anything that that strikes us as painful, negative, hard. It can range from a bad day that leaves us tired and grumpy to the loss of a friend to a bad harvest at the end of a season to mental and physical health struggles, to the loss of a job, to grief, to a cancer diagnosis, and even to death itself. And so what we are saying this morning is that God exercises his absolute right to do all that he pleases, even in the things that we suffer. 
Now, this is a hard thing to believe. In fact, it's so hard to believe that about 40 years ago, a book was published that started a whole theological movement trying to deny that this was true. Pastors and scholars who felt that it was impossible to believe this in light of the goodness of God and built a system that denied God's providential guiding of human history. Unfortunately, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, I think that while they had good intentions, what they actually did was present us with a view that is even less comforting than believing in God's sovereignty. So I think what is often the case is that we like to believe that we suffer. We know that we do, that that's part of life in a fallen world, but that God has nothing to do with the suffering, but but that instead he sees it and he takes that and he uses it for our good. But I don't believe that this is the reality that Scripture presents us with. Now, again, I realize as I stand up here, this is a hard topic. This is emotionally difficult to believe. So we're going to handle this in a few sections, essentially. First, we're going to ask the question, is this actually what the Bible teaches? Because if I'm ever saying anything from up here that the Bible doesn't teach, you really shouldn't listen to me. Second, we need to ask the question of, is this actually good news? Is this something that we want to believe is true? And finally, how, how does it affect me today if this is the reality? So first, does the Bible actually teach what I have been saying to you so far? We're going to start with, with maybe one of the most famous texts in all of Scripture that talks about this issue, the story of Joseph, right? If you've been in church for any amount of time, you know this story pretty well. Joseph was the favored son of his father, sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers, falsely accused of trying to sleep with his master's wife and ultimately thrown in jail because of it. Forgotten prison for many years, but then brought out of prison, rose to a position of prominence, and ended up, by the grace of God, giving him the ability to interpret dreams and Pharaoh putting him in charge of a bunch of stuff, he ended up saving Egypt and his family, the ones who had sold him into slavery, from a famine. So after the death of his father, his brothers come to him terrified because they figure now the vengeance comes. Joseph, he knows what we did, obviously. He's in a position of power now, and with dad gone, he's going to kill us all. And they come to him trembling, fearful. They actually try to lie to him (laughs) so that he won't kill them. And he responds to them, with a famous verse that teaches us a lot about God's sovereignty, and that's Genesis 50, verse 20. He says to them, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We sang the song Sovereign Over Us a little bit earlier, and the bridge of that song, if you remember singing it, refers right back to this verse. But because when you're writing music, you kind of have to worry about like rhyming and the timing of lines and all that stuff, I don't think the bridge actually says it as clearly as it could. Because the lyrics of the bridge are that you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. And the implication is that if you're not aware of of what the text says here in Genesis, is that the enemy acts and then God sees and he reacts. He responds to what has already happened and he turns it around. But that's not what Genesis 50, 20 actually teaches. Most English translations do a phenomenal job here because the verb 
for what the brothers did. Joseph says, you meant this for evil. And the verb for what God did, he meant it for good. It's the exact same verb. It's the same word. The, it's not meant and turned. It's meant and meant. And that means that there is one action, the brothers selling Joseph into slavery. But in that one action, there are two intentions. There's the intention of the brothers to harm Joseph, which ultimately fails. And there's the intention of God, so that, as Joseph tells us, many people should be kept alive. God was utterly sovereign over the details of Joseph's life. And so we learn already in the book of Genesis that even when it may be hard to trust God's actions, we can trust his intentions. And if you're going to write anything down today, let it be that, because you're going to hear me say that a lot of times today. When it, it may be hard to trust God's actions, but we can trust his intentions. He will do things we may not understand, but he will not fail us. Second story, again in the Old Testament, the story of Job. I'm going to read some of the verses from the beginning here. There are a lot of questions that arise in these verses. I, I know that. We're going to focus in on what these have to teach us about sovereignty, and if you have you know, other questions about any of the other weird details here, feel free to come and talk to me after. So Job 1, verses 6 to 12, this is what we read. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So we need to realize a couple of things in this story. The first is that Satan had to ask God's permission to afflict Job with suffering. Satan's not all-powerful. All he doesn't get to do what he wants. And more than that, God gave him a specific line. It's this far and it's no further. You can touch his stuff, you cannot touch him. And Satan had to obey. And so even with some of the other difficulties in this passage, what is clear is that Satan does not have the freedom to act where God does not allow him to act. And so again, you have one action, the work of Satan against Job, but you have two intentions, his to harm and God's, as we will see, for Job's good. The author gives us an even greater insight into this reality. Just at the end of chapter 1, after Job loses some of these things that, that Satan has come out against, this is what Job says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then the author helps us. He gives us this little comment. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And so Job saw 
into these two intentions. He saw that, that disaster had broken out in his life, but that God was the one ultimately sovereign over it. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. And then to make this point clear, the author helps us out and says, look, when Job said that, he didn't sin. He wasn't wrong. And the beauty of this story is that it ends much like Joseph's does. It ends with restoration, ends with prosperity. Job 42.10, the end of all of these events, says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave him twice as much as he had before. So even after suffering much loss, Job was restored to something even greater. Though, and if you read the whole book of Job, you'll notice God never tells him why he suffered. But again, even when we can't trust God, or even when we can't understand God's actions, we can trust his intentions. Because there are some things that it is impossible for God to do. Right? Okay, some of you have even asked this question before, often by like somebody who thinks the idea of God is ridiculous, and they're kind of wanting to poke at you a bit, and so they'll go, oh, well, if God is so powerful, can he make an object so big that even he can't lift it? We all know it's a silly question, but the honest answer is no, because God does not do things arbitrarily. It's not what he does. He acts with purpose. He's never going to do things just because. He's doing them because he is working towards his ends, his goals. We see that in the life of Job. And finally, one last brief example from the life of our Lord Jesus. Right, one of the most important things that we can say about Jesus is that he was an entirely innocent person, yet he suffered and died a violent death. And hear how the Apostle Peter talks about that death in Acts chapter 2. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You can hear those echoes of Genesis 50:20. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, but they crucified him. One action, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but two intentions. By the Jewish leaders, it was to kill a man who had become a problem. And by God, it was the death that would defeat Satan and pay for the sins of the world. God was sovereign over Jesus' suffering. And these are just a few examples. The Bible teaches this from cover to cover. Nothing happens apart from the sovereign decree of God. But we need to ask, is this actually good news? Because for some of you today who are currently bearing up under the weight of some intense suffering, this is going to be hard to hear. And that's okay. It, it is hard. You might be asking the question, if God is good, how can he have let me go through all of the things that I have? And so for you, it might be better to hear this point stated this way. You will face nothing that has not come to you through your loving Heavenly Father's hand. He has vetted all of it, so that even as you face it, his character can reassure you that he will only do you good even when it doesn't feel like that is what he is giving you right now. Even when we cannot understand his actions, we can trust 
his intentions. And so not only is this true, I really do think this is good news. Right? And so let's just let's think about the alternatives. We'll just talk about one of them, the one that I mentioned from that book earlier. Right? So, so in 1980, there's a theologian named Richard Rice, and he released a book called The Openness of God. And in it, he introduced the world to what he called open theism. Now, I'm going to super oversimplify this position, but essentially, Rice and other open theists have aimed to avoid the tension of a God who is sovereign by essentially arguing that the future is not actually settled, and for some of them, that God doesn't even know the future at all. It's unknowable. God can't know the future. He can't control it. Now, I really do believe they had good intentions. They, they wanted to bring comfort to Christians, and in their minds, I think they wanted to protect God, protect in quotes, from the implications of his sovereignty. But is this really reassuring to Christians? Is it, is it really helpful for us to think that when that diagnosis comes in, or when that relationship implodes, or when the financial crisis hits, that God is just as surprised as we are? That doesn't feel like very good news to me. That, that feels like the one source of comfort that I might have is stripped away. The reality is that, that this and all the other alternatives are just not good, comforting news. On the surface, yes, they are easier to affirm. They feel less messy. But as we think about them, we realize that the only position on this topic that can truly bring us a sure and lasting comfort is one that I believe the Bible clearly professes, that God is sovereign even over our suffering. 19th century theologian William Plummer, I think, wrapped up how I feel about this topic perfectly. He wrote, If we are poor, or sick, or bereaved, or defamed, how delightful it is to know that it is the Lord and not man, the Lord and not Satan, a friend and not an enemy, a most tender father and not a capricious master who thus ordains. So how, how does this affect us today? Right? I believe that every theological position has implications for how we live. How we view God matters. And if I can give just one, I think that this this changes how we pray in a really good way. Because one of the hardest experiences that a Christian can go through is to be bearing up under some intense suffering and to be pleading with the Lord day after day to take it away, only to feel like he's ignoring them or not answering. But when we understand that God is sovereign even over our suffering, it teaches us how to understand those difficult times. It's not that God is not listening. It's not that he's refusing to answer. It is, and this is key, hear this. It is that in his endless love for you, and in his infinite wisdom, and in his desire to do his children only what is best for them, that the answer has to be no. When we believe this, we aren't left wondering if, if maybe we can just pray with the right combination of words, or, or maybe if we can promise God just enough, if we can bargain with him and say just the, offer the right things on the altar, maybe then he'll answer. 
or, or even worse, if maybe I just believe a little more, I just have a little more faith that he will do this than he will. Instead, we can simply keep asking in faith. We can trust that whatever answer we receive is truly the best that our good and wise God can give us. So our second point then is to trust that our suffering has a purpose. Now, if you've been paying close attention, this point has already been made, right? In every story that we talked about to, to make our point in point one, we saw that God does not ordain suffering arbitrarily. He does this with a purpose. But let's briefly discuss four passages that specifically speak to some of God's purpose in suffering. And I say some, not all. We'll never, I think, we'll never fully understand, much like Job, why it comes. But we can see in Scripture some examples of how God uses it. The first, man, like the ultimate coffee, coffee mug verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Most of you can probably quote this one from memory. So the prophet Jeremiah says to the people of Israel, speaking for God, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So this verse can be really easily misused, right? Because if we're misreading it, if we're not understanding the context that it comes from, we can read this and hear, God means to prosper me, which means I'm going to prosper. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be rich and healthy and life's going to be good. And if that's not happening, it means that I am screwing up God's plan for me somehow. But within the context of this book, that interpretation is nonsense. Because what is happening when the prophet Jeremiah speaks for God to these people is that they are living under the domination of the nation of Babylon. They're essentially slaves in their own territory. And shortly after God says this to them, they're hauled out of the land and brought into exile in Babylon. Right? God wasn't saying this right before he established the kingdom in power, right before he made the nation prosperous and large and they were having all these victories in battle. He said it to them in the darkest moments of the nation's history. This is not a promise by God that he's going to make sure life is always sunshine and rainbows. But it's rather a promise that even though we will certainly suffer, that his intention is our suffering is that we will ultimately prosper. And that our future with him will remain secure regardless of the difficulty of our earthly life. What good is he pursuing? Right? What is the good that he is trying to do in us, for us? Look at Hebrews 12, verses 3 to 6. Again, this is not what all suffering is for. This is what God uses some of it for. The author of Hebrews writes, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He's talking about Jesus. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. If you remember back a few months to our summer psalm series, we talked about in Psalm 23 the reality that, that for those who know the Lord Jesus, there is no punishment for sin remaining. All of the punishment for every sin that we will commit is covered by Jesus at the cross. 
which means you will never suffer as a believer as a punishment for your sin. But the Lord will let us suffer as an act of discipline. And what's the difference? Punishment is about retribution, right? It's about you receiving what is just. But discipline is about love. It's correcting. It's, it's helping you to see your own foolishness, to bring you closer to the Lord, to make you more like Jesus. Because sin is deceptive. It's insidious and it's destructive. It, it lies to us. It entices us. And if we're being honest, it often makes us justify our own wickedness and act like we, we should be able to do these things that the Lord does not allow. And so just like a good human father, the Lord will discipline us when we drift from him so that we will return. It's painful, but it's restorative. It's good. It builds us up. It makes us more like Jesus. And again, it ensures that he will hold us to the very end. So that's one. A second one we see in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. The Apostle Paul is talking about some great revelations that he has received from God. And then he says this. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So do you see what's happening here? Paul was a profoundly gifted individual, given incredible revelations by God. And so in order to keep him humble, there's some sort of thorn given to him. Don't know what that means. There's kind of conjecture, but, but we just have guesses. It's something, some kind of suffering that wouldn't go away. Paul asked again and again that God would take it, and the Lord's response is profound, right? He says, no, Paul, you don't need it taken away. The relief from your suffering is not what you need. My grace is what you need, because in your weakness, my power shines through. And so in our sufferings, God is teaching us to remain reliant on Him. He's teaching us that we are not capable, that we are just humans, and that He is God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all need this. This is a, a culture that values self-sufficiency, right? One of the great images of our culture is the self-made man, the self-made woman who has clawed their way up to the top by their own, by their own will, by their own strength. But that's not the picture of a solid Christian. A solid Christian is one who sees their own weakness, who has been humbled before the Lord and has seen again and again that if it was up to them, they'd be dead. But the Lord's grace is sufficient. I'll tell you as a pastor, I don't know if it's uniquely true in this profession, but it certainly is. When I try to do this job by my own strength, it's crushing. It's not possible. And I think that is the suffering that the Lord brings about to humble me 
so that I'm on my knees in prayer, and I'm in the Word, and I'm not trying to do this by Daniel's strength, because Daniel could never be your pastor if it were not for the grace and strength of the Lord. Final example, Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 34. So the author writes, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and listen to this, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. One of the goods that God will do in our lives through suffering is that he will loosen our grip on this world. Right? The people rejoiced in the plundering of their property because it reminded them that they had something better coming. I can just imagine, right, walking past the house that was yours a few weeks back that was stolen from you because you became a Christian, and it's that reminder again and again, but I have a permanent home prepared for me in heaven with the Lord. The suffering brought joy because it reminded them that what we live in now is not the final state. Our bodies are imperfect. Our nation's unstable. Our relationships are fragile. But what is coming after these earthly sufferings are abiding and permanent joy. And as those things break apart, as they fall here, as we live, as we suffer through the brokenness of the fallen world, every one of those moments is going to make heaven so much sweeter when we get there. Because it doesn't struggle like it is here. All of this is temporary, but it is permanent. And the Lord wants to constantly keep our eyes forward. This isn't it. Right? I've heard the quote before. If you If you strive for earth, you'll get nothing. But if you strive for heaven, you'll also get earth thrown in. I mean, that's the reality that we live in. We live not for now. We live for the eternal joy of being with our Savior. So these are just a few examples from Scripture that show some of the purposes that God may have through our suffering. But we have to return to our original question. How then, in light of this, Can we rejoice? Can we actually be grateful today for the hard seasons, for the sufferings that we have been through? First, we again remember that they only come to us through the loving hand of our Heavenly Father. And He delights in doing us good. It's a promise. He says as part of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, I will delight in doing them good forever. That's what is promised to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, is that God will delight in doing us good forever. And so none of the suffering we face comes without His good intentions, His good purposes for His children. And as the suffering comes, we remind ourselves and we remind those around us of the gospel. The finished work of Jesus Christ that has guaranteed for us that this life is temporary. This is not anything compared to what we have coming. And all the losses, all the hardships will not compare to being in his presence. 
I want to close with three brief cautions, three mistakes that I think we can really easily make with these truths in mind. The first branches back a little bit into the Grace and Truth series that we were just in, right? One of the, the principles that we were given is to learn to, to speak the right truth, um, or I might add, speak the right truth at the right time, right? So we should never lie to an individual who is suffering, but the first words out of our mouth almost certainly should not be, God is sovereign and has a plan in this. Probably not particularly helpful in the moment. I think Jesus in John 11 is a great example of this for us. He comes into the village of, oh boy, Bethany? Bethany, I think, close enough. Mary and Martha are there, and their brother Lazarus has just passed away. Jesus knows full well what he's about to do. He is walking into that village to raise Lazarus from the dead. But he goes up to Mary and Martha. He doesn't rebuke them for a lack of faith. He doesn't tell them that they need to trust God more. He weeps with them. He steps into the difficulty with them. He feels the pain with them, even though he knows what is coming. So even in light of these truths, we ought to grieve well with people. And then, when they are ready, we point them to the hope that is found in God's sovereignty. Second caution, we really need to avoid trying to peer into the secret purposes of God. Right? It is generally not helpful that while we are sitting in sufferings, we try to speculate about what God might be trying to do through this. Sometimes, sometimes after the fact, and I'm sure some of you have stories like this, we can look back and we can see some of what the Lord was doing in our difficulties. But my guess is that even when we have a lot of years of hindsight, we're still missing a lot of what he was doing, and we're still pretty liable to get it wrong. So to come back to something I've said a lot this morning, we don't need to try to figure out why God is acting as he is, but we can trust his eternal intentions. And finally, one last caution. Rejoicing in sufferings does not mean refusing to feel hard things. Too many Christians assume that if they are sad or hurting, then they aren't being joyful, right? If I, if I feel sadness, I'm sinning, because clearly I don't trust God enough. But that's just not at all how the Bible talks about this. I mean, we think about the book of Psalms, it is the most real expression of human emotions. There's deep lament, there's deep sorrow, yet an abiding trust in God. Really, I think what we see is that gratitude and lament are two sides of the same coin, Right? Both of them are acknowledging that all our good comes from God. And so gratitude is when we go to him and thank him for what he's done, and lament is when we go to him and say, we know you're good. We want to see it more as we're suffering here. Both of them acknowledge that, that God is the source of our good. And so this morning does not mean that you just need to always pretend you're okay. It, it doesn't mean that when people ask you how you are, your response should be, well, God is sovereign, so I'm, I'm fine. What it does mean is that, that we can feel the hard emotions, that we can work through the sufferings, that, that we can and should share those with our brothers and sisters in Christ, but that in the midst of that sorrow, we can have an abiding trust that God will do us good. So as we close, I just want to read from Romans chapter 8. It's looking forward to this reality. It's, it's thinking about the sufferings we face now, and it's looking forward to what is coming which is what we ought to do as we leave this space today. Romans 8, 18 to 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Even as we suffer, we wait for it with patience, knowing that what is coming for us is so much greater, is eternal joy, eternal pleasure with our Lord. Let's pray. And so, Father, we bow ourselves down this morning before your sovereignty. You are the king, and we thank you that you are a good king. And so, Lord, I just pray this morning for my brothers and sisters here, first for those who, who are in these moments of intense, real, deep suffering. And Father, I just ask that you would comfort them. That, that as it says in the book of Romans, that, that your spirit would again bear witness to them that they are your children, that you love them dearly, and that you will not cease doing good to them. Father, I just pray that, that we would be a church that understands the two sides of that coin, that we can mourn and grieve together in the brokenness of this world, but that we never lose sight of a deep trust in our perfectly sovereign God. Lord, ground us today in that truth as we leave from here into, um, I'm sure, a lot of family gatherings, a lot of opportunities to express gratitude. Lord, let, let the greatest part of our gratitude be about who you are and about how you use suffering in our lives for good and about all the good that you do for us. Amen.